Welcome to the Haunted Hacker podcast number, Phil, give me a number between 200 and 300, make it yours. Uh, 300. 300, perfect. Um, great movie, by the way, too. Uh, so I wanted to give you guys a little bit of updates before we get started. Um, I spoke at FinCon DX 2021 today for TechStrong. Uh, it was really cool. Um, talk about financial exploits and vulnerabilities. Um, I speak for ICE in January. Um, and a couple others in between that have not been solidified yet. Um, other than that, don't have a whole lot of news. Um, this is my second or third podcast this week, so not a lot has changed. Uh, tonight we have Philip Wiley. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, and I realized this evening that we have quite a few paths that, that we've crossed simultaneously, I think, um, which is really cool. And we have a lot of the same connections. So, this should be a really, really good conversation discussion about cybersecurity. So, Philip, why don't you tell us about yourself and give us a little bit of your background and journey into cybersecurity? And thank you again for being here on the show. Well, it's an honor. I was I've been seeing your podcast out there, and I thought it'd be a guest. And just so happens, a few weeks later, I got invited. So it's an honor, honor to be joining you. So awesome. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, I'm Philip Wiley. I'm a penetration tester. I've been doing defensive cybersecurity for coming up on 10 years, and I've been in cybersecurity for 18 years. Prior to that, I spent six years as a sysadmin. Uh, I've also taught ethical hacking and web app pen testing at Dallas College. I taught there for almost four years. That really got me interested in doing more in the lines of mentoring and teaching and helping others get started in the industry, which have become passions of mine. So I speak at a lot of conferences and do workshops at a lot of conferences and and new shops and, and that sort of thing. That's pretty awesome. Um, you know, I, I think mentoring and, and teaching is, is valuable, uh, super valuable. And I think that's the only thing that's going to really keep our industry going is that type of mentality to, to give it back and, and to help people get into what we do. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have that same, that same path when we started. Uh, I've been in the industry for over 20 years. And uh, really, we had to learn on our own. Um, I remember BBSs and asking questions was not really one of those things that was widely accepted. Uh, so yeah, we, we come from similar backgrounds and, and I've seen the stuff you do and, and some of the publishing, the, the book that you wrote. Um, it's really interesting. And to look at the following you have, you have quite a following. Um, I can't remember how many uh, followers I saw on LinkedIn, but everyone I talked to, uh, I was speaking to Dustin Dykes. We talked about him before the show. And um, I was talking about the podcast, trying to match up a date with him. And he had just spoken to you. And, mm-hmm. you know, you'd already been scheduled. So it's it's really interesting. And North Texas, I don't think people know this, but North Texas has a very tight-knit and a very active cybersecurity community. Uh, can you tell the, the listeners a little bit about what's going on in North Texas? Because it's, it's, really, it's really awesome. And it's a great community. Yeah, it's uh, Dallas Hackers was one of the things that's really helped boost we have in our community because prior to that, you know, I I was unaware of the local DC group and I found out about it through Dallas Hackers Association and it got me more involved in the local community, you know, because at that time I did not even know that local DEF CON groups were a thing, found out about them, got connected to the local OWASP group. We've got a lot of different groups going here. We got a DC group. Dallas Hackers Association, which for those who haven't heard Dallas Hackers Association, they actually featured in popular mechanics 
And the title of the article was, if you want to be a hacker, go to Dallas. And so we actually had, there was actually someone came up from Mexico after that article was published to check out Dallas hackers. And this person, this guy didn't even have a Twitter account before then. So he signed up for Twitter and it's just interesting. There's been a lot of speaking careers and careers launched. I mean, Tinkersec came out of this community. Uh, you know, first he was just an attendee at Dallas hackers before he became a co-host and, you know, he was an IT recruiter. And so I've seen, we've seen a lot of people come up through Dallas hackers. I mean, uh, rainmaker in a local community, he does a lot of speaking. Uber Kitten has really made a name for themselves. They do a lot of talks on barcode hacking and stuff. So it's it's really interesting because it's really encouraged people to speak. You know, the other groups, it was out there and you could be invited, but Dallas Hackers, they kind of want you to speak when you come. You know, they, they tell you they don't enforce it. It's like Austin Hackers Association, you go the first time and you don't have to speak. Next time you better be ready to speak. It's not as strict at Dallas Hackers, but people are encouraged. And, you know, we do fire, they do fire talks there, which are 10 minutes in length. So that's not long to speak. So a lot of people get a feel for it. And, you know, there's a lot of networking going on there and uh, people can find mentors. And so it's a really good, encouraging environment for people trying to get started. You know, there's some communities that aren't so friendly. And then you kind of mentioned where we started back in those days. You know, one of the things, you know, they talk about gatekeeping nowadays people don't really know what gatekeeping is from being internal to a company, because don't you remember the, the Unix administrators that wouldn't tell you anything because, you know, that's their job security. If they let you know about this secret script or whatever, then they're worried they could be replaced. And we dealt with a lot of that. And so that's kind of one of the things that motivates me to want to mentor and help people to make it easier for people to get in. And also kind of a little more on the mentoring thing, you know, they say it's better to give than receive. And, you know, I never really realized that, until I got involved with mentoring. Yeah, it's, it's really awesome to see, you know, people fresh into the industry and spend a little bit of time with them and seeing other people work with them as well and see what they become at the end, uh, I mm -hmm. think is more fulfilling than for me learning a new exploit. Um, because yeah. to see someone hold that and retain that information and knowing that they got it from somebody who passed it on, they'll potentially pass it on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that legacy and that tribal type knowledge, I think is really important for our culture um, yeah. because I mean, we've grown into this industry where, you know, vendors and corporations tend to guide the path now, uh, as opposed to when we first started, it was a hacker culture and it was truly the hacker culture. Uh, so I'd like to see a little bit of that come back. I know it's hard with, with commercial and industry, but I think we're on a good road. Um, so yeah, like some of those guys that you mentioned are just phenomenal people. Uh, also whiskey neon, uh, mm -hmm. all the, all those guys just, I've, I've had great interaction with all of them and, uh, really respect what they do. And also the makerspace up there is pretty active, which I think is really cool too. I think makerspace is really important for what we do, not, not only to, you know, build out new technology or, or new devices. Um, you know, look at the Bluetooth sniper rifle that came out at DEF CON one year, you know, that, that mm -hmm. type of stuff really fascinates me. Yeah. Um, so, so. With all the mentoring and you know your full time job and speaking and writing books and training, where do you find time for Philip? Yeah, usually that where I when I find time for myself and a lot of times it's spent with my daughters. I like to watch movies mm -hmm. and watch the movies in the theaters. And it was kind of interesting before I started teaching back in January 2018. I used to watch over 100 movies a year in theaters. Wow! And so like. Christmas vacation, I would take like the last two weeks of the year off 
one of, you know, I would do my shopping during that time and there'd be one day I'd go to the theater. I might see two or three movies and I'll still do that today. It's been a little slower because of the pandemic because movies haven't come out as quickly, but I would go to a theater, you know, go there in the morning and watch a movie and stay there several hours watching three different movies. Uh, but interesting about that, it goes back to some, some of the mentoring thing. Whenever I started teaching and speaking and all that stuff, I thought I'm not gonna be able to see as many movies this year, but I felt more fulfillment because those movies I always didn't get to see my daughter were movies that I'd see on my own. I'd be, you know, bored, need something to do and go to the movie theater. So that's kind of, kind of what I do. So, yeah. Cool. So I have a question about that. Okay. Are you, are you one of us that have gone to pirate Bay and downloaded those movies as well? No, I haven't. Oh, man. <laughs> I'll you know what it. happened what 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 ruined me and put me on the straight and narrow was the cissp and i guess it's kind of silly because it kind of you know people would let you borrow their software or copy software and stuff back in the day and and you know i kind of saw you you know thought about that and just kind of got me to i buy my software and legally get the movies and stuff and and that sort of thing so yeah totally totally <laughs> yeah i yeah. wasn't i wasn't on that straight and narrow i guess uh you know, I, I had my my turns at Pirate Bay and, yeah. and chase, chasing them around the internet as they got banned from different servers. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's part of the culture, I guess, and part yeah. of learning and growing up in, in the industry. Um, so you're, you're an accomplished pen tester. So within pen testing, what would you say your favorite principle of pen testing? Is it Wi-Fi? Is it web app? Is it voice over IP? What is your favorite to go attack? It's kind of, it kind of varies because whenever I first started pen testing, I was consulting at this company and it was down to where, you know, there wasn't much business coming in and me and one of my coworkers, they offered us the option to go over to their managed services group, which they had a group that did uh, reoccurring quarterly pen tests on web applications for companies or applications in general. And at this point I had just a little over a year's worth of network pen testing experience. So I was over there just doing application for a year and I had to leave. I went to another company because I wanted more variety. So it just kind of basically depends on what I'm doing at the time. So, you know, you start getting bored with infrastructure and want to do web app. I guess nowadays web app is a little more interesting to me than, than the network stuff. Yeah. I kind of went backwards in time with uh, my current focus. I think um, I started hitting cell phones pretty hard. And RF, uh, I think, and this is just my, my opinion, I think as an industry, we've, we've gotten so locked on to IP and network and app that we tend to forget that there's all of this floating information that you can grab with an antenna. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of it. So, you know, and there's no defense mechanisms for that unless you build your company into a Faraday cage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I kind of drifted back to that. And I know a lot of the old school hackers um, tend to drift back and forth as far as principles go as well. Um, because I think as an industry, we change quite a bit as to, you know, what's vulnerable and, and what we're putting out. Uh, but sadly, and I, I, this is my theory. I think that when you look at our defense platforms, whether it be endpoint detection or antivirus or, or whatever, um, we've made a lot of, I guess, progress but it hasn't been that, that light storm progress where it's been that, you know, that silver bullet for that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the platforms have stayed kind of similar to what they were back in the day of like Snort IDS, IntraShield. Um, what's your theory on that? Because I'm really interested to see everybody's opinion in the industry 
about where we've come with defense platforms. My opinion on the defense platforms is just, you know, some of that stuff, if it's configured correctly, it can be good. But I think what happens is you can have the best of the best, but if you don't configure it correctly, it's not going to be secure. And I think that's a lot of what you run into. I think some companies may skimp on training, you know, maybe they need to get, and sometimes it's not a matter of them not having training available because a lot of those vendors have free training for their software or hardware. So I think companies need to make the time to let the employees understand and learn how to use, use the products. Cause I think it's just like every other vulnerability, you know, there's a lot of misconfigurations out there, weak passwords and that sort of thing. So I think that's kind of what's happening there. But I think one of the things that, that I'm, that I like, I think the come the year of the uh, people need to do more of is purple teaming. I think that's a good way to kind of help mature organizations, because if you can take some of the tools out of the hands of attackers where they can't launch, you know, PowerShell scripts or Mimikatz and stuff like that from a workstation, if you can take some of those tools away from you, you know, nation states and some really good hackers may be able to get past that, but at least you're going to, you know, reduce your, your uh, attack surface a little bit, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you talk about platforms and people not getting enough training um, and things aren't configured correctly. So I was working with uh, Darktrace and deploying Darktrace to uh, clients that we had at this other company. And what I found is that when you put an AI type of program or platform, machine learning, more it was a better term, drop that into an already dirty network, it tends to think that that's normal. And so all that bad traffic seems to stay. Um, it takes a lot of work to really weed that stuff out because we're not talking about like back in the day, like the networks and the throughput, and the bandwidth was not nowhere near what we have today. And so to tune that, that amount of network traffic, I mean, that, that can be, that can pretty, it can be a pretty arduous task as far as, you know, a team goes. Yeah. And that's, that's some good points on the, the network not already being secure and the software seeing that as normal. So that's, a, that's a very good thing. Uh, a good point and people need to pay attention to that get things cleaned up before you start and fixed before you start bringing in introducing more technology yeah but i think in history uh, we've always looked for that silver bullet i remember when ips came out and everybody was talking ips like that was going to solve our our problems um and we realized that that was not the case and then we went to endpoint detection and we've been there for quite a while and we're seeing that's not necessarily going to solve the problem and then AI starts popping up and getting more popular. But I, I think, you know, and it's, I, I talked about this on the uh, conference I was on today. And I think that we're seeing the same issues throughout history. And people always look at silver bullet, but they're not, they're not willing to put forth the effort to lock down the basics. And I think we keep chasing our tail. You know, we, we want these nice shining bells and whistles, but we're not willing to put in the work to make it secure to get to a point where that can actually protect us. Yeah. One of the things that's kind of, that I kind of hate to see too is, you know, as a pen tester, we do our pen tests and someone files a risk acceptance or the remediation doesn't get done. You can do all the pen tests you want to, but if you don't fix it, you're still vulnerable. Yeah. My, my favorite, um, like, I guess, comparison to that is, when a company says, oh yeah, this is off limits, that's off limits. And always in my head, I'm thinking, you know what, the attacker is definitely going to follow your instructions. You know, if you don't want them to attack that, you know, hands off, you know, it's a gentleman's agreement. You know, that's not how the world works. And usually after the pen test, the companies that get compromised, they're the ones and the servers they designate as off limits are usually the ones that get hit pretty hard. 
Um, so, I mean, you know, pen testing is a lot of fun. Uh, I love pen testing. I do instant response, pen testing, and blue team. I run a, a MDR. Um, so I get a, a taste of everything. But red teaming and, and purple teaming are probably two of my favorites. Um, so tell me about your most interesting pen test. Most interesting pen test. Well, my favorite web app pen test was I was doing a pen test for this application. I was working as a consultant, the job I was talking about where I got burnt out of just doing application. I was able to get command line access through SQL injection. And it's kind of interesting. I was doing this test from a hotel because my mom, this was back in uh, 2014. She was had lung cancer and metastasized her brain. And so my daughter and I were living out of the hotel and in Mississippi, Bill take care of her and has actually kind of come at a good point in time. I don't know whether some people, what their belief system is, but it's some times like God or the universe gives you a little something that you need. And I was doing this pen test after hours because we were spending the day at the hospital and I was running burp suite and noticed a SQL injection vulnerability. So I was using one of the plugins uh, that was able to integrate SQL map. And I went through to test to validate whether it was you know, truly SQL injection. And I worked a little bit further and then found out that they had XP command shell enabled and I was able to get command line access, dumped the password hash and the password was password all lowercase number one. And I cracked it with, with John the Ripper, which is not the best of options, but it cracked it fairly quick. And, and back to the risk accept, the file risk acceptance, the customer filed a risk acceptance because it was a development server. Oh, wow. <laughs> And since it was just, I couldn't stay in scope, I couldn't go past that. So I could have possibly pivoted into other areas of the network. And if the passwords are that weak, what's the odds that password one is not the admin password on other systems as well? And more than likely, it probably was the admin password for most servers that they had. Yeah. Um, I think one of my most favorite uh, pen tests I went on, um, and it was very shocking, was a hospital on the East Coast. And uh, we were initially doing the scans and just kind of looking at the environment and taking uh, network traffic uh, packet captures. And I noticed there was passwords going around in clear text. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Let me take a look at it. Come to find out that password was an admin password. And I went to the hospital staff and I said, look, I know you guys are trying to pass this pen test because you need funding from the state to keep the hospital going, but you can't have clear text passwords floating around. He goes, oh, I'm not really worried about that because we all use the same account. It's the same admin account and it has domain admin. I was like, okay, I'm going to act like I didn't hear that. <laughs> you can't have that. that that's, you can't do that. Um, and we ended up going from one of their corporate data networks into some of the more sensitive stuff, like actually touching OR equipment. Uh, and I hated it, but I, I couldn't. I couldn't not give the, the true data. And I think as pen testers, you know, that ethics and sticking to the true data is really important. Um, and they were upset because they knew that that type of result was going to end up with, with a lot of remediation and possibly, you know, having a reduction in, in finance or whatever. Um, but ethics as a pen tester, I think is super important too. Uh, you know, following the statement of work, knowing what your boundaries are, what's off limits and, and trying not to uh, cross contaminate and stuff like that. Um, what is the most challenging part of pen test for you personally? The most challenging part, I guess that's go going back to, the, you know, people not remediating and filing risk acceptance, but kind of to give you 
an example of what you're talking about with the hospital and knowing ethics and when to do things differently. I was doing a Wi-Fi pen test for a hospital up in uh, Maryland. And I went, to, went in there, started doing my scans and I'm starting to see medical devices, insulin pumps and all sorts of stuff connected to the Wi-Fi network. And I went back and let them know that because it's a pen test. And I kind of told them about that. So we changed the scope to a vulnerability assessment. And then we did like a uh, configuration analysis of the, the Wi-Fi controller instead to kind of give them the same kind of coverage without causing any risk because I didn't want to be responsible for taking down something that's keeping someone alive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, go ahead. And I think as pen testers, we got to be responsible for like, a, you know, you get all excited and you want to get domain admin or root or whatever, but we need to be careful when we go in there because, you know, you got to consider you could take down businesses, you could, uh, you know, endanger someone. So you need to be responsible with that. And one of the things I think that helped me was my sysadmin background, because I knew if someone would have came in and wrecked our network, I would have been upset having to go back and, you know, restore all that. So that's one of the things that's always, I keep in the back of my mind is just thinking about who's going to have to clean this up and, you know, be careful not to break things. And, you know, a lot of times that's what people have to realize about, you know, people that do this legally for a living compared to threat actors, threat actors, they're going to be careful because then we get caught, but if they break something, they're not so much worried about it like we are, because it's part of its ethics and trying to do the right thing. And then also at the same time, it's trying to, you know, have a re repeat customer, be able to have a job to come back to as well. Yeah. And I think as time has gone by and, and I've grown up in the industry, I think looking back at my younger years, when I first started pen testing, um, you know, I was one of those ones who I wanted to beat up the network. I wanted to show people that they were vulnerable and they didn't know what they were doing. And, and I really, I, I loved being able to beat up a network. But the older I got and, and the more situated I got in the industry, I started to learn that this isn't about embarrassing people and it's not about smacking people's networks around. It's about helping people. And I think when pen testers are young and, you know, they, they don't, they haven't been in the industry very long, um, domain admin and, you know, banging their chest and, you know, excited about it. I get that. But I think as pen testers, we have to remember that our job as a pen tester is to make people better, um, not to push them down and, and, and belittle them, but to help lift them up and, and help them out. Um, and I started seeing that really truly just within the last year, uh, seeing the impact and seeing people that have truly been beat up uh, through IRs and incident response. And, you know, I, I used to not have any empathy when it came to people who were not patching or, or who just didn't have the knowledge to, to bring their security up to that next level until I started doing IRs and seeing people potentially lose entire businesses um, seeing hospitals potentially, you know, affecting kids or, or lives or whatever, um, that, that brought a different uh, viewpoint for me. And it really made me think about the human factor, not so much the ones and zeros, not so much about banging around networks, but truly the people that are involved and connected to those networks and responsible for them. Um, you know, they, they try their best and sometimes it's not enough, uh, but that's, that's all they know. And that's why they hire us is to help them identify where, where their weaknesses are. Um, and I think that goes back to mentoring too. You know, I, I, I didn't think about mentoring when I was younger because I was just wanting to have fun and hack stuff. But the older I get, it's like, we're not getting younger and more people are coming into the industry and we're start. I feel like we're starting to lose that culture. 
And that's kind of why, why I do the pen, the pen test and, and the podcast, especially is a document uh, the history of pen testing and, and our culture and, and leave something behind for the people that are coming in. Um, but I think empathy is, is one of those things that um, is really important when it comes to pen testing, because, you know, you, you see people getting beat up on pen tests, but when you see it active and it's a threat actor and they don't care about your feelings, they don't care about your network. It's a different story. Yeah. And one of the things I like to do, you know, I really like what you're saying about that. I really believe in, in, in those thoughts, but one of the things I like to do too, when you're doing the debriefing or report readout meeting at the close of a pen test, and even before that, I like to make sure that the people that I'm working with realize we're on the same team. I'm not trying to make them look bad. I'm trying to help them out because you know, as well as I have, you've been on those debriefing calls where people are super offensive. It's like you told them their baby was ugly or something. They're just all offended and stuff. So I find it easier if you kind of level set when you go in, try to establish that relationship, let them know, Hey, I'm not trying to make you look bad. This is what I've found on my pen test reports. I try to point out what they've done good and compliment them. Like if I'm doing a retest and I notice the number of, maybe they've got the same vulnerabilities that have been completely remediated. I like to share with them that, yeah, you've made progress in this area. Or, you know, maybe if I wasn't doing a physical pen test, I would, you know, pay attention to the physical controls because it's recommendations you can make for the customer, but also let them know when they're doing something good because you may yes. go in and it may be a ton of bad news, but let them know they're doing something good. Give them some, some hope because, you know, that affects the morale of those people managing that infrastructure. And if you just, you know, beat them up, they're going to quit caring and not try. Yeah. And, and you're going to lose a client as well because nobody yeah. wants to be shamed in front of, you know, executives. Um, yeah. And so with IRs, that, that's another thing too, is to watch these guys clean up and the amount of work it takes after a network has been completely smashed. And the, the sysadmins, you know, I remember back in the day, like our, our culture used to be so volatile when it came to ego and stuff like that and shaming people and, you know, putting it in their face, you know, we did this, we did that. Um, but I think that that needs to change because it's not only, you know, a, a very minuscule amount of people that are getting attacked or whatever it's global you know it's not like it used to be it's global attacks um and we're all in it together and i think that's really important to remember uh, another thing that comes to mind too is the phishing campaigns that we used to do um and they would identify users who had repeatedly failed the phishing campaign and it would always be a remediation um and i started gamify it right so i started you know having like a prize for people who identified the phishing email uh, and make it something positive instead of, you know, hey, we failed this again. You know, what's wrong with you guys? You know, it's the same email. Let's get better. But people don't don't react to that. Let's get better in such a negative tone. Yeah, you know, I think as an industry, we need to start giving it more of a positive spin and positive outcomes, um, even when things are rough, because, I mean, it, this is not going anywhere. And looking at the history of hacking and vulnerabilities, it's not going to stop. I mean, we're, we're on a fast train. Yeah, I like your ideas of that positive reinforcement. I think all companies should reward, reward people instead of punishing them, you know, not fire people if they click on something because they're going to be scared and they're not going to report it. If they realize they can report things, even if they goofed up, we're going to be better off, but reward people instead because, you know, positive reinforcement works a lot better. Someone, you know, if it's exciting for them or they feel good about reporting something or finding something, you're going to encourage them to, to continue doing that. Absolutely. I had a, uh, an analyst that, um, that works for me and I had just promoted her to a level two. 
uh, and that the level twos, you know, help out the level ones and they take escalations and stuff like that. And she's fairly new, uh, a lot of drive, uh, a lot of passion about what she does. And we did a red team event or kind of red team kind of a pen test uh, internally. And she caught it and caught it within two days. And the red team was like, well, you know, I've been doing this for a couple of days. And I'm thinking, okay, let's talk, let's talk about the identification time of a breach normally in the wild is somewhere around 290 days. She caught it in two days. So that to me, that's a win. Yes. And uh, they were like, oh, we were being really noisy. And I said, but that's good, you know, because that that's legit. And she identified it. And, you know, it's all about she's doing what she's supposed to do. And she loves what she does. Um, so, you know, little things like that, like really excite me because I see people's passion and stuff like that. And it just, it really pushes me forward knowing that as bad as things can get with like ransomware and, and politics and COVID and all the craziness, at least there's people out there who are still passionate about what they do. Um, so if you could take one thing out of your entire conglomerate of things you do for the, for the industry and for security, you know, book publishing, writing, whatever, what would be the one thing that would be your ideal job that you would focus on 100%? Yeah, if I could focus on something 100%, if ideally, if I could start my own company where I could educate people that are wanting to get into the industry and put them on pen tests so they actually get experience, it might be like an apprenticeship program. Maybe it's not long-term employment, but bring people on and cycle them through to help them get the experience. So if I could do that, it'd be great because I see how there's so many people out there that just can't get their foot in the door. And sometimes you just need to be persistent and keep trying, but sometimes people lose hope. So if I was just like a, a billionaire, I, could, I would set up a consulting company that we would maybe do like uh, some low cost or free pen testing for different organizations that maybe can't afford it. And then let someone get this experience at some sort of pay, not totally free, but let them get in, get this experience. So maybe they get six months to a year and they can move on to another job or if things are successful enough to keep people on, keep people on. You, you would need some people around to help you know, guide people that were coming on starting because you couldn't take care of it all yourself. And I had talked to some, a company like last year about doing an apprenticeship. And one of the things I realized that uh, to do something like that on scale, you'd either have to have one company that's dedicated to that or apprenticeships, one company, it's kind of hard for them. If their normal business is focused on making money, then you're only able to bring a few people through an apprenticeship like you would internships. So it's kind of limited. So something that could be scaled where, you know, people could get experience, you know, working in, uh, you know, production environments, getting that experience, because that's what, that's the blocking point for everyone is trying to get into security. And that's one of the things I encourage people or tell them one of the positive things about going to a college. You don't have to go to a college to get into this, but one of the advantages to that is you can get internships and that experience is what's going to help you get your foot in the door without it. It's a lot more difficult. It's possible. People do it all the time, but it's easier when you have the experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of groups that are out there doing something very similar. Um, you should probably look up Nico Herman. Uh, Nico is a, a big figure in BIC, Blacks in Cybersecurity, okay. and they do just that. They, they help people get prepared for the industry, um, help them find apprenticeships, internships, whatever. Uh, I can't say enough good things about BIC and, and what they do for, for that culture and for our industry. Uh, another one too, uh, Tanisha, um, she does Black Girls Hack 
in, in DC. And same, same focus, right? So the people who wouldn't normally be able to get that type of exposure to what we do, uh, maybe it's background limiting or, or the, where they are geographically or money or whatever, they reach out to those people and, and give them that opportunity. And I think that, you know, not only are we talking about mentorship, we're also talking about diverse, true diversity. Uh, not just sex, male and female, but but backgrounds and and you know how we were raised and geographics. Uh, I think plays a huge part in it. And we've been talking about that quite a bit lately on the podcast. Is why diversity um, and what is diversity? And so I go back to the days like you had mentioned the Linux admin, admins when we were younger and first getting into the industry, and they held the keys of the kingdom, didn't want to talk to anybody because that was risking their job. Um, it was predominantly a middle-aged white man with a longer beard than mine that ran that type of uh, computing and security and that type of group. Uh, but, you know, that mentality has to change. And I think we've done a really good job at doing that. Uh, we've allowed more women into the industry, promoted them, and, and really they need to be part of the industry 100%. Uh, I've seen some great leaders uh, from women in cybersecurity as well as, you know, all kinds of diversity, um, you know, whether it's background or, you know, religion or, you know, what language you speak. I think there's a place for all of this. And I think that when you limit um, those type of people that may not be able to afford getting that $5,000 cert or straight out of college, not be able to, you know, get their foot in the door. When we limit those people with requirements on certification, we're losing a lot as an industry, I think. Um, we're losing that mind power and that knowledge. Um, and I really want to see that change. What, what, do you, what is your take on um, entry-level positions and the ridiculousness that, that we put on requirements for those entry-level positions? Yeah, that, that is a huge annoyance of mine because just to see that they, they're asking for all this entry-level and, and it's stupid to see an entry-level job expecting a CISSP because technically... You can't have a CISSP or shouldn't have one if you're entry level. So I definitely think companies need to make it easier. And that's kind of part of the what inspires me or the, I'd like to see programs where it makes it easier for people to get a start. People got to relax the, the requirements because there's such a big gap and people are crying about not being able to get people. You've got to loosen that up, you know. Yeah, and the thing absolutely. is, you don't have to hire people on permanent. You could also just bring people on on a contract basis. If they work out good, if they don't, then if you brought that person in, they got 90 days experience, that's some experience and they're closer to a full-time job somewhere else. Absolutely. So we got to do that. And I think as far as the diversity thing, I think what we need to do, because, you know, you need to, I think people need to diversify their networks, make an effort to try to reach out to different people to try to help them. Because a lot of the times, I think some of the, the lack of diversity is because these are people in your network that you associate with, you're recommending people you know. And then once you get more specialized to pen testing, you know, there's times when I'm doing podcasts that I have to go out and look and try to find some female pen testers because you just don't see it as much. Wow. And I know some of them want to get out there. And so it's just a matter of they ain't got opportunities, but we just have to make an effort to, to network with, with others that are not like ourselves and try to help them, you know, because the more you bring people, I think it's not always a case of people not wanting or trying to gatekeep or keep people out. It's just, they don't know these people. And the easiest thing is, is just folks just get out there and, meet other people and just, you know, and it's kind of funny. I find myself, I really, I enjoy networking more with people that are not old white guys like myself. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head 
and you know we need to to get out there more and i think part of the reason for the lack of diversity early on was we're typically not people that are that outgoing and uh you know a lot of us struggle with that type of anxiety but i think that's changing as well i think that the industry is being you know being more welcoming to to all different types of people and by the way if you want a good female pen tester to be on the podcast holly grace williams from the uk is phenomenal okay uh, she's great Actually, yeah. we're, we're connected on social media that's a good idea i've been yeah. going through looking through my connections and finding some people because just trying to make sure to to get them in there because you know like I said, you're looking at people in your network that you communicate with a lot. And like the first women I had on my show were women that I had communicated with more frequently. And that's how I knew them. But yeah, that's a good, good recommendation. Thanks. Yeah. Her, her and uh, Alyssa Knight and Alyssa yeah. Miller, the, those I've three. Had, I have Alyssa Knight on. Yeah. So, so I started, I had her on the podcast and uh, we got off the podcast. And next thing I know, I'm working for her doing something I've never done before, like screenplay writing. Um, so that's another thing too, is people getting into this. Don't be afraid to take on something you've never done before, uh, because you'd be surprised, you know, how fulfilling it can be to like learn new skills and stuff. Um, but yeah, like the mentorship and, and, you know, bringing people into the industry. And, and I always try to expand my network based on watching someone and how they interact and, and who, who follows them and why they follow. Um, I had been following Alyssa Knight for a while and, uh, I just, I thought, man, she's, she's really onto something here. Like she does everything and does she's it amazing. well. Yeah. And the stuff, you know, she's an awesome hacker, but all the other stuff she does outside that is amazing to, to have had in like four different businesses and sold several businesses for multi-million dollars to have that business, uh, acumen as well as the creativity and all that it's just amazing there's no yeah. one else in the industry producing you know video content and stuff like she is and and just the all the cameras and stuff uh whenever uh i had her on my podcast she had had just got the new camera that would set their pan across the room and just kind of move back and forth automatically so that was that was pretty cool yeah, she's phenomenal. And some of the stuff that she's doing is really cutting edge. You know, So instead of like marketing for a cybersecurity company and putting together a slick or maybe like a short video, they're doing actually like small movies, like 10 minute movies, episodes for these companies to help promote their products and what they do and how they do it, uh, which I thought was just insanely genius. Um, and I just finished one of my first screenplays for a client. And uh, it was so much fun. I learned so much about what it takes to do that type of stuff. Um, but she's the type of person that, that she'll watch what you do and identify who has what she wants and she'll pull them in. Mm -hmm. And the businesses that she started are just crazy, crazy successful. So when she asked me, I didn't even hesitate. I was like, absolutely. Um, yeah. Speaking of Texas, I didn't realize that talked to her. She used to be like a CISO yeah. around the Dallas area. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, people don't understand, but there's a lot of stuff that comes out of Dallas. Um, yeah, you know, some of the some of the first hacking groups came from Texas. You know, when you look Cult of the Dead Cow and some of that stuff, um, some of the stuff originated right there in, in Texas. Uh, and I've met some of the greatest people in Dallas. One of my first um, employers, Llewellyn Derry at uh, NEC Unified, um, I spoke in Dallas a couple months ago, and he showed up. And we've been friends for 20 something years and, and it was just like catching up and like we hadn't even been disconnected. 
but he's one of those guys, I think we all have him, one of those uh, influences in our career that kind of puts us in the right path and, you know, gives you that motivation and believes in, in your ability. And I think that makes a huge difference. I think that positive influence, like we talked about earlier, really makes a difference with some of the people coming into the industry, like new people. Yeah. And sometimes it's simple as just encouragement, just encouraging people. Yeah, absolutely. And I like doing the, uh, the workshops, right? So hands-on workshops. And a lot of people are, are very intimidated by being in those classes um, to where they're actually having to follow the, the instructions and, and, you know, maybe compromise the machine because they don't want to feel like they can't do it. And everybody else can. Um, but I make sure that like everybody gets a piece of it. And in the end, we've all popped shelves, right? Because to, to get that kind of motivation and keep people interested, you have to make them successful. You have to help them get to where they want to go. Um, and I think a lot of employers need to take on that same mentality is, you know, maybe this person doesn't have all the skills that you want on your prerequisites as an entry level. But if they don't have it, why not help them get it and make them that much better of an employee and a person instead of just cutting them, cutting them off and saying, no, you still have the qualifications. Mm -hmm. But I think truly that's where we're failing. It's not the ones and zeros. It's not the platforms. It's not the way we respond to incidents. I think it's the way we respond to people in general. Yeah. I think that's something that's just going to have to change with on the management level, because, you know, I think a lot of us is just peers or whatever. We were all for it, but just getting management to change their mind, management and HR, you know, for sometimes it's tough for people to get past that HR firewall because some of these ridiculous requirements. And so that's one of the things I always recommend to my students and people I've mentored is network, get out there and network, because, you know, if you can get your resume in the hands of someone that's a hiring manager, or can get it to a hiring manager, you're going to have a lot better chance of getting in. Yeah. I also tell people getting into the industry is that they always ask me, so what can I do to make myself more marketable? And I always tell people, find something to do research on, publish that research, you know, build a GitHub. Um, document everything. So when you go into that, that first position you're applying for and they say, what search do you have? And you can say, well, I can't afford certs, but this is all my research and it's published. Um, that gives you a leg to stand on. And I, I would much rather hire somebody that has done that than let's say somebody who's sat for the CEH. Yeah. Um, I think there's much more value in independent research and, and going from point A to the finale of that research and showing, you know, the end result to me, that's 10 times more valuable than any cert. Yeah, definitely that. And CVEs, uh, Joe Helly that goes under the mayor, he had recently came out a while back that he was recommending for people go out and download free and open source software for like hotel management systems or medical, go through, download it, install it and do a pen test against it. And from people are being successful, successful finding CVEs and a few people are getting jobs because of that, you know, there's a lot of pen testers that don't even have CVEs. So if you can prove that, I think that's proving that you can do what you're supposed to compared to a question and answer exam. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm the type of person, like when I first started out in the industry, you know, I would want to be able to defeat a certain control uh, measure or breach a certain system. And it was such an addiction. I think, I think for a lot of us, it is an addiction and I would not stop until I actually got access or I got to that point that I wanted to be. And I think it takes that same type of uh, mentality for people coming into the industry. There's too many people who I've seen try to get into the industry, but they don't want to put in the work 
they want to overnight be a hacker or be a pen tester. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they always tell me, you know, tell me what you know so that, you know, I can go get a job. And I'm like, man, this is 20 years of experience. Like, I don't know how to break it down and build this, this magic ball to hand to you and, and automatically you get a pen testing job. But I can tell you what it took me. And it was a lot of work and a lot of research mm-hmm. and a lot of failures. And I think that failures is another thing that, that we're not very good at admitting. But to me, some of my biggest failures turned out to be some of, some of my biz, biz, biggest successes uh, throughout history. Um, and our industry is not very good at admitting failure. Um, we see that all the time when people get breached. You know, they hide that or they hold on to it. Um, but instead of doing that, if they were just to release that information, not only would it make the whole industry better that we could learn from what happened to them, but it's also freeing. You know, hey, I screwed up, and this is how I did it, and you know, we go on from there. Yeah, it's just you know, failure is one of the best teachers because you know the first time you install. You know, like the very first IT job I had was sysadmin work. We were doing a NetWare 411 and Windows 95 rollout. And so I did like a year of solid installs, didn't run into a lot of problems. But then my next job, I was doing, I was a sysadmin and this environment was totally broke. Uh, there was like only three of us on the team. And so you're on call every third week and getting called all hours of the night, the way to take care of the email system, the email administrator that had left told me, said, yeah, just reboot this system at lunchtime when everyone's at lunch every day. And then before they went to Cisco switches, they were using uh, the Lamplex switches and they would reboot them daily. (laughs) And and this is kind of things that went on. And and I was like close to quitting, but I thought, you know, I spent like a year of solid install and I could do that stuff in my sleep. So I knew I needed the, needed the uh, troubleshooting experience. And I just kind of muscled through it and just struggled through and I learned a lot and came out of it. Just that failing when you're installing something or you're trying to troubleshoot something, screw it up. And then you just kind of learn the different ways that you can fix those items. And so that's kind of, I think same thing as developing the hacker mindset. If you can't get in this way, you build up enough knowledge base that you know that you can try this too, or you see this certain thing that maybe this is vulnerable or maybe this is misconfigured and you can get in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember when I first started messing around with computers and, and I wanted to build a computer, make it faster. And my biggest failure at putting my hands on a computer for the very first time and trying to, to manipulate the hardware was I took the RAM out, right? And I was going to put more RAM into it. And I crossed the teeth on the pens and shorted <laughs> out the motherboard. And I was so mad. I was like, okay, it smells like smoke. My damn computer won't boot. What have I done wrong? Um, so then I learned that, you know, you have to put it a certain way and those, the way it matches up with the, with the, uh, with the Ram is, is really important. And yeah, I mean, you learn along the way, but if you're teaching yourself, you're gonna fail. There's times yes. when you cannot succeed all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I look at that and, and as a kid, you know, I come from a different background and failing wasn't an option. Right. And I had that pressure. Uh, but what was great was when I started my own career path and I threw that shit out the window. I was like, you know what? Failure's okay. Some of the you know brightest people in the world have failed at times. Yeah, you've got to fail because if you never fail, what happens? You advance as far. You're not going to know what to do and you don't want to get that far along in your career, have not failed and you're not going to be able to figure it out. You know, it's going to be more difficult. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people that come into pen testing are always like, oh, yeah, you know, every pen test I've done, you know, we've got domain admin. Man, I've been on some pen tests where I can't get shit. 
But that's not yeah. a bad thing. That's so not no. a bad thing. That's a great thing. Yes, because, because shows- the goal of that is you're testing the security. Doesn't mean you have right. to pwn them every time. Right, right. <laughs> um, even though it's exciting when you do pop a shell yeah. and domain admin, it's fantastic. Um, I was doing one in California for a clothing company, uh, a national clothing company, and realized that their uh, point of sale system was sitting on a Windows XP operating system. Um, so it was really interesting and it was so much fun because it was a trickle effect and then it became a waterfall where every point of sale system across the U.S. was compromised. And I was like, oh, my God, this is big. Um, but you had those great moments and, and you hold on to those. But those great moments wouldn't be so great if you had some kind of failure to, to back it up. Um, so, yeah, man, I, I really appreciate you being on the show. And, dude, you're such an inspiration. Like, I look at your followers and I look at the way you communicate with people and you're one of those good guys in cybersecurity. And I, I, I really look up to that. Like that's, that's big um, because I think that a lot of people, once they get to a certain level or they gain certain notoriety that they tend to forget where they came from. Um, but you're definitely not that person. And it's just refreshing to talk to somebody with that, with that type of mentality. Uh, so I want to thank you for being on the show. And, and if you have any questions for me before we wrap it up, fire away. Uh, and I'd love to have you back on and, and, uh, you know, have some more discussions. I think we could go on for a very long time. Sure. Yeah. I've loved this discussion. It's been an honor to be on your show. Great talking to you. And we really never had got to speak in person before or speak at all. So look forward to getting to do that sometime in person, but back to the, the mentoring and all that stuff. One of the things about it, people, you know, thank me, but it gives my life a purpose. You know, my daughter's grown now, so she doesn't really depend on me. You know, it just, it kind of gives my life a purpose and we all need a purpose. And that's kind of what I found and kind of what really got me into this area, accepting to be a mentor and, you know, I'm, I'm a power lifter and I still, still compete. I haven't competed since the pandemic because just trying to be careful and, you know, like 2020, there weren't any competitions and just trying to wait for things to be careful. But I've always tried to compete in the open division, regardless of age. And I kind of learned that I have to compete in my own age group. And then along with the hacking piece, I just kind of seen, you know, trying to be the best and keep up with people being have a competitive mindset for years, I just kind of realized the place for me to excel at is I'm, I'm good at listening to people and I like to help people. So the world needs coaches and mentors. And so why not embrace what I'm better at? And that's why I put the focus on it. Absolutely. And we don't stay young forever. And no, we don't. Uh, I'm sure these newcomers into cybersecurity will eventually pass us up. And at that point, what are we left with? Uh, giving back and, and mentoring, pushing those people towards the top and, and giving them what they need to get there. Yeah, it's a good um, legacy to leave behind. Absolutely, 100%. So, Philip, I, I appreciate it. You're welcome in the community anytime you want. Um, you know, if, if there's anything I can do to help you on the mentoring side or whatever, let me know. Uh, and, you know, it's great having you. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks. It was an honor. All right. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you next time. And if uh, you don't follow Philip on Twitter or the other platforms, make sure you do because he has a great following and he's a great guy. And with that, I'll say good night. Thanks, Philip. Thanks.